Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. In this episode, we have the privilege of speaking with two pioneering young surgeons in the field, Dr. Fatima Wilder and Dr. Ashishana Osho. Both are new faculty members in their respective divisions at prestigious hospitals in Boston. Join us as we explore their unique journeys to becoming cardiothoracic surgeons, the challenges they faced along the way, and how they overcame them. We delve into their strategies for balancing their family lives with their academic and clinical responsibilities, and their approaches to restoring the health of their patients. Most importantly, we discuss the gravity of being the first black faculty members in their respective divisions, the impact of representation in medicine, and their efforts to increase diversity and inclusion in cardiothoracic surgery. So whether you're a student, resident, or practicing surgeon, we invite you to listen and learn from these remarkable individuals as they share their stories, insights, and perspectives on same surgeon, different life. Dr. Wilder, Dr. Osho, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. No, I think we're we're gonna get both into y'all's history um, and uh, how you got to where you are today. Uh, there's some commonality with the uh, 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 country of, of Nigeria. Uh, before we get into it, you know, at the time of the taping of this podcast, um, uh, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons past president, uh, immediate past president, Dr. Sean Grondon, unfortunately has passed away. Um, uh, it's really unfortunate news. Dr. Sean Grodden is the immediate past president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Um, he's a regent of the American College of Surgeons and the uh, current president of the Western Thoracic Surgical Association. And so we uh, express our condolences uh, to the family uh, and friends of Dr. Sean Grodden, as well as to STS staff. Um, Dr. Wilder, uh, um, Dr. Osho, are you familiar with Dr. Grondon? Have you uh, met him? 
I never had the pleasure of meeting him. I uh, primarily was aware of him as an STS president and through some of his um, efforts to to promote leadership and and encouraging surgeons to do that, you know, on an individual basis. Yeah, it's some of the same for me as well. I, I didn't meet him personally, but I, I do remember sort of feeling like you have to be a particularly formidable person to, you know, to run a meeting coming out of COVID. And, and it was a particularly good meeting. And, and I was just re really inspired by all his work and, and very sad to hear um, what happened. We talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and how can strategies be successful? And the best way for a DEI strategy to be successful is leadership from the top, you know, a mandate sent down. And uh, Dr. Grodin as, as uh, STS president was really supportive of this workforce and, and really tied in uh, this workforce into the strategic plan and mission and values of the STS. And he will be missed. You know, uh, I'm excited to have the two of you on today because uh, both of you are first year faculty, um, Dr. Wilder at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and uh, Dr. Osho at, um, uh, at MGH. And I really wanna hear your, your perspectives. Also of note, you're both the first black faculty members in your respected divisions as at these venerable um, uh, institutions that are part of the cardiothoracic surgical uh, fabric. How has your first year been, you know, Dr. Osho? It, uh, it, it's, it's been great. Very, very busy. Um, different pace, different responsibilities for, for being a fellow, but um, I've been very well supported. And, uh, I, you know, ultimately, I think this was the right place for me to be. And wh why is that? The, the, the support. I, I think I, everybody will say this. I think a lot of people will say this, but I think I have some of the best partners in the country. I think my, my senior partners are, have been there through some of the difficult cases. The, the people at my level or, or some that are even already my, my sort of junior partners that are, are excellent people to work with and doing cases together with them is, is, is just really a treat. Um, so every step of the way I felt supported. And, and I think this is a big thing for me in making a decision about where to take a job. Now, Dr. Wilder, uh, you are not only first-year faculty at the Brigham, but you are also uh, uh, serving the our veterans uh, our community within the VA system at West Roxbury. You know, how has your first year been? Um, it's been amazing in a lot of ways. Um, it's been full of surprises and and a lot of transition. I think one of the things that I've found myself thinking about when I was getting ready to graduate from fellowship was that, you know, you realize you're going at about a thousand miles an hour as a fellow. And then all of a sudden you stop, <laughs> you move, maybe you move across country, you move across town to start this new job. And there's really no instruction manual um, about what you should do, which is different from what we've known our whole lives as trainees thus far. So um, there's been a lot of calling people, getting advice, um, relying on mentors that, you know, we have been instrumental up to this point. And then getting to know my new partners who've also been pretty amazing uh, since being here um, with the move, with a young family and with with starting this new job. It's been 
it's had its own set of challenges, but it's been overall, I wouldn't, I don't think I would do it any differently. Now you trained at uh, Johns Hopkins for uh, fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you came out, uh, you, as you looked at jobs, and since you left your institution at Johns Hopkins, what was on that checklist that would, uh, that swayed your decision to go to the Brigham? You know, what was necessary for you uh, to have in place to jumpstart your career? Um, the number one thing I think maybe tied for number one were that my family would be happy there, but just as importantly that I would have good mentors that would be people that I could look to rely on and call on at all hours of the day and night. Um, because as much as we think we know everything as fellows, you quickly realize when you're in attending that it's it's a whole different ball game when you're the last person to answer questions and to solve problems. So those were two things that were very, very important to me in deciding um, where to, to work. And once I met the people here um, and had conversations with them and spent the time interviewing, it was pretty evident to me that they would be wonderful people to work with and work for. Now, Shauna, uh, you trained at MGH for fellowship, and so you kind of knew the, the 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 lay of the land. So it was the onus on MGH to keep you there um, and to prevent you from leaving. So, what kept you there? Yeah, I I, I will you know I will admit I, I looked I, I interviewed far and wide West Coast um, Midwest all over the place and. And some of the key things that, that I was thinking about initially included the, the right kind of sort of clinical breadth. Um, I, I wanted a role that would have a meaningful research component to it, and, and a few places gave me that. Um, but the final decision really came back to came down to the same things that Dr. Wilder was talking about in, in terms of mentorship support. Um, I, I trained with the people here. I, I knew that at 1 a.m. in the morning, if I called, they would they would show up, and and they have. Um, and 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 that you know, in addition to all the other things, that that was just a really priceless piece to be able to be sure about. You know, I like to say to our our our, our, our junior faculty uh, when they first start, I say you're no longer uh, residents; uh, you're management now. So what, what has been sort of the, the biggest surprises uh, that you found as uh, uh, new faculty that you had no clue you had to deal with uh, as a trainee? I, you know, uh, I, oh, uh, go ahead. Please. I, I think one that stood out, stands out to me is just how willing patients are to do whatever you tell them to do, which is a little bit scary. They're very, very trusting and understandably so, because we have the time and they have invested the, the time in, to train. But at the same time, I think it, it's it surprised me a little bit more than I expected it to, especially amongst our veteran population. Um, but with that has come a greater sense of responsibility to really make sure I'm no, I know my patients and to recommend the correct thing for them. Shana. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with that. And, and, and also, you know, I, I thought we were busy as, as chief fellows. I mean, we, you were sort of always on and, and busy all the time. But but I don't know that I appreciated the, the true ability to actually take like BOA. 
Um, I, I, I try to do that now, but as an attending, and this is the, they can call you and find you at any time. And, and uh, as as much as I value that, I, I don't know that I appreciate it. That I, I think my my mentors and and bosses previously did such a good job managing that that I, I didn't appreciate the you know how, how much of your life truly is you know on call, even if you're not technically on call. And it does extend to to managing the hard days. I, I think the sort of the the amount of it's not a, a bit of an emotional sort of component of things when when things are imperfect and and just managing things with families and and the patients themselves. Um, I, I think my mentors did an excellent job just managing that and and being able to do the next case after something doesn't go right. And that has has been something that. I, I've had to work through and, and, and get get through it, you know, appreciated anew as an attending. Now, both of you have, have nuclear families. Um, uh, Fatima, congratulations. Uh, you uh, uh, just had your third child two weeks ago? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Congrats. Thank yeah, congrats. You. And, and um, uh, Dr. Osho, you are uh, have kids as well, my understanding. I, I don't have kids. I, 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 uh, I do have a very uh, needy puppy, but no kids. <laughs> needy puppy. And um, but neither of you have extended family in the region. No, not not. My closest family is uh, my mom's cousins who are in Worcester, which is a little bit of like about an hour away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got some cousins in uh, in Detroit, but my sort of immediate family is, is back in Nigeria. In did, Lagos. did that factor into your decision to come there in terms of the, the pluses and minus, you know, uh, setting roots in the area where your extended family is, is not there? So you're really sort of creating a, a, a new uh uh, signpost, if you will, for your families. Did that factor in at all into your decision making and where you would take your uh, this opening um, stage of your career? Um, and, you know, to, to some degree, it did for me, and, and it's a, it's in a bit of a roundabout way, but um, it's easier to fly to Nigeria from the East Coast and the West Coast, so so that certainly factored in, in a little bit as as I think that being able to visit the family um, occasionally. Yeah. And Fatima? I think I think for us, you know, we've kind of always been far away from the time we started our family. We were in California and they were on the East Coast and other places across the country and uh, similarly in Maryland. And then so moving here, it wasn't as high of a priority because I think my husband and I both felt like we've we've done this a few times without the direct hands on support from immediate family. And it it forces you to create a new community, which has been um, a blessing for us in a lot of ways. Now, you both, in regards to your your uh, families, you're both from relatively large families. Um, um, uh, Fatima, you're, I think, one of five. And uh, Shauna, you are uh, one of four. And Shauna, you were born in Lagos, Nigeria, and ultimately moved to the States for college. Um, what has that experience been like? I know, you know, you went to Oberlin College, a small liberal arts school, uh, going from Nigeria to here and then entering this healthcare world. 
Yeah, I mean, we could dedicate another hour just to talking about that transition. Um, I, you know, I, I went to a, a Catholic boarding school in, in Nigeria, which actually, you know, made it easier for me to, to come to the States. I was used to not being home. But, but just culturally and, and philosophically, um, you know, America on one hand, but also Oberlin as, as a place was, was just so ideologically different than, than what I'd grown up with. Um, but it ended up being, you know, an absolutely fantastic place for me. Um, it's a great college, really opened up my mind to a, a lot of different things, a lot of different ways of life. And um, that experience, I would, I would trade for nothing. I, I think that Oberlin College and the city of Oberlin are just absolutely fantastic places. You know, it was interesting um, in a, a previous podcast uh, with Dr. Valerie Rouge, we talked about the value of a liberal arts education. And... Um, um, and it's not commonly associated with STEM, uh, especially in surgery. Um, but we, you know, thought of the value of a liberal arts education and translating that into what's valuable in surgery. You know, having an open perspective, um, looking at different angles, and then especially in academia, the ability to write, right, and sitting down and writing uh, constantly. Have, would you agree with that sentiment from your experience? Oh, 100 percent. I think um, I think it's it's contributed a lot to, to many of my successes. And and I'd say very importantly, my ability to navigate, you know, various personalities and viewpoints in, in the specialty and, and really in medicine altogether. Um, one of the many things I did at Oberlin was I, I was a conflict mediator. And, and I think that that uh, has really contributed to, to my temperament and my ability to to work with people. I can't think of many places where you could even do that as a student. So. You know, interesting, you bring up conflict mediation. Um, uh, Fatima, you were born in New York City and lived between New York and New Jersey. Uh, your dad was uh, an attorney and a photographer, but your mom, you know, had a position in, in the United Nations. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, she was um, a diplomat that worked primarily based in Nigeria. And then as we got older, ended up spending more time, um, at, you know, representing Nigeria from New York. Um, it was an interesting world to be in because, you know, I would when I was young, the rules were a little different then from, I think, what they are now in that there were many days I went with her to the to the the office, not the hospital. Um so I spent time, you know, at the UN, in the General Assembly, putting the little things on my ears, listening to things in different languages, seeing her interact with people from all walks of life and and just getting a, a, a sense of how big the world is. Um, that's probably the best way to kind of describe what my experience was spending that much time with her since I was the youngest, I, I got to do so. Um, so it definitely changed or I guess shaped my perspective on people and and relationships and and how to navigate them um, in your life and in your career. So you know what conflict mediation did you see in your mom's uh, career? And then um, were you able to sort of translate that into your own either care for patients or managing your way through this cardiothoracic surgical educational process? Um, I think that the most direct way I saw it was in the use of literature and attempts to change, I don't know if it's policy or enact change through um, through writing, essentially, because a lot of her 
into one of the areas that she was very passionate about was women and children and ensuring that women and children had access to care or access to food and things that they may not have had in different countries. Um, so she spent a lot of time not only as part of smaller groups within her role at the UN, but um, writing documents that essentially were meant to serve to support enacting change in different arenas. Um, so I think it was, for me, the, the, the most direct way or the best way to sum it up was understanding the importance of using your education, using your ability to speak and communicate to address conflict, to address change. Because if you can do that in an effective way, then that's the best way you're gonna see people respond to you. Um, putting coherent sentences together and, and being able to relay your thoughts uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that really relays what it is that you're trying to get across. Does that help in the operating room? Um, I think it does. <laughs> you're, you know, it, it took me a little while to really appreciate how much as a surgeon, you're the captain of the ship in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it may be a bit different now, but um, I think you have to be able to express what you want very clearly, um, take feedback from other people who may not agree with that, and then come to some sort of balance in terms of saying, okay, you want us to do this, but I'm here to advocate for this. How can we find that almost a happy median, unless it's obviously um, just clearly not safe for the patient? You know, Shana, why cardiothoracic surgery for you? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I um, started medical school wanting to do infectious diseases. Um, you know, it's, it's what I knew from back home and, and wanted to treat malaria and things like that. Um, but then I, I did a rotation and didn't love it. And I, I was looking and I was invited. I was at Duke then and invited to uh, the operating room with uh, Tommy D'Amico um, at the time, actually. And that was my first introduction into CT. And I, I, I loved it. I, I loved being in the OR. I loved the, the environment. I loved the, the physiology um, and saw more of that when I got into cardiac. And, you know, from there, I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to do. And uh, Fatima, you want to be a physician since age six, but you know, how, how did you uh, make that transition from um, to cardiothoracic surgery? Yeah, um, I was formally introduced to CT surgery as a, when I was moonlighting. Um, I was in the lab at Memorial and was moonlighting through NYU, and I spent time taking care of patients who were recovering from cardiac surgery. And honestly, in caring for those patients, I was just terrified most nights because I was a second year resident, essentially, who was responsible for taking care of all these patients. So I, I had a healthy fear of cardiac surgery and the fact that it was a very complex um, world. And then I actually got back into the hospital uh, after finishing research and did my formal rotations. And when I actually got to see the operations, see the perioperative care of the patient, and then the postoperative um, outcomes for, for the most part, I, I kind of found myself really starting to love it and uh, love the complexity of it. One of the faculty I was working with suggested that I explore thoracic surgery as well, and they didn't have um, thoracic faculty that were as busy at my institution. So I ended up actually meeting um, a famous person named Dr. Cook, who allowed me to spend some time with him in um, California at UC Davis. And from there, it was kind of all 
all done for me. I, I, I watched cases, I got to talk with faculty and residents and, and really loved the fact that you were dealing with something that was so complex, but you could make real change in your patients' lives and, um, and enjoy what you're doing uh, while you're doing so. So that was where that came from. So I swear I didn't ask that question in a self-serving way. That was not a, a sort of a, no, 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 not, not at all. Not, not a hanging curveball there. To, to I'm happy out. to I'm happy to brag about the influence you had on on my career and on my life. It it was instrumental. Well, I think I, I that's that's wonderful to hear. The, the the key point that I I get out of this is that you know we, when we talk about mentors, uh, we really encourage uh, uh, trainees uh, and uh, faculty, young faculty and staff to find a mentor. Uh, but uh, one key uh, uh, fact is that uh, your mentors may find you, but if you don't, if they don't, then you need to find them and being proactive. And uh, we were very happy to have you uh, rotate out with us. But the key thing is that you were proactive in reaching out to us and, and getting your mentors uh, at UCSF Fresno to, to reach out to us. Uh, and um, and being proactive to finding those individuals who can help guide your career. And, and that's key. You mentioned, uh, Shauna, you mentioned uh, Tommy D'Amico uh, and you reaching out to him and him being an extreme mentor for yourself. You know, the uh, another thing that I noticed from both of you is that, you know, you are, um, um, would be defined as black in our society. Um, and Shauna, you hail from Nigeria where really um, race is not necessarily a defining factor, but more ethnicity in Nigeria. You look around and, and many people could be described as black, but really what defines maybe is religion, ethnicity, and et cetera. Um, Fatima, you come from New York City uh, which is an extreme melting pot uh, and um, experience in the United Nations where you have vast different cultures and et cetera. But the, the fact remains as there's less than 8% of trainees in cardiothoracic surgery would be described as black or, or African-American. Um, and, um, and when you look at faculty uh, in academic medical centers, it's less, less than 5%. Um, in cardiothoracic surgery, who would fit that category. As we move up in our profession, it's inevitable that we become first in something, whether it's the first STS president like uh, Bob Higgins um, or um, the first uh, uh, director of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery uh, or uh, first uh, Thoracic Surgery Directors Association president is, is inevitable that there are first. You two are, uh, again, from the best of my understanding, the first faculty members uh, who are, are Black uh, in your respective uh, divisions. Uh, and these are historic divisions that, that are part front and center in the consciousness of cardiothoracic surgery uh, in North America. Do you think about that? Does that does that register you with you in any way, or does it not? 
That's a tough one. I was stalling to see if Dr. Wilder would uh, would rescue me. Yeah, you guys were kind of waiting. I don't think about it all the time. I'll, I'll put it that way. It's not like it's constantly in the back of my mind or, or anything. Um, but but I have thought about it and and it on, on two fronts. One is to some degree there there's a weight with with being the first. Um that, that is that is good. It, it, it is it is saying that you know th things are progressing to a point where where th th there's access to, to some degree. But but it also brings with with us a bit of a weight in that you're the first one, and, and to some degree you feel this responsibility to to not be the first one that was a failure to launch or, or that didn't do well. You know you, you're feeling like you're you're in some way setting the path for others to come ahead. Um, I, I think the best thing that it's done for me, though, is, is providing me with a, a platform to, to really um, empower trainees and, and other mentees in, in who want to be like us. And I, I try my best to make it a point to, to bring the residents of color and the, the students of color along and, and provide, you know, the type of mentorship that look like that looks like them that, that I didn't necessarily have. Yeah, I. I agree. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think, you know, there's the added, there definitely is a, a sense of pressure and a sense of you can't screw this up. <laughs> you know, people are looking at you and if you do so, then you're going to mess it up for the next person who has the opportunity. Um, I think also as a woman, there's a, there's another additional sense of pressure to do so because, you know, having a family and not using that as an excuse or not using your womanhood as an excuse. And there've been many women who've come before me, regardless of race, who have established uh, a precedent and have shown that it's it's doable. So um, like Dr. Osho said, I think there's more, less time spent on thinking about being the first and more time spent on how can I help other people who are where I was that didn't think that they could get here, how can I help them get to this point and beyond um, so that they can thrive and, and make this not that much of a big deal anymore one day in the future? Just out of curiosity, when you were recruited and, you know, you know around the time that you signed on the, the dotted line there, although it's never a dotted line, all the contracts I've signed has always been a full completed line that I that my signature is supposed to go on but that's the saying sign on the dotted line did it come up with your chiefs did they, did they realize that you were the first or or was I the first person to bring it up no uh not in the interview process but with someone another member of the faculty that I spoke to that was like are you aware of this fact this little tidbit of information and you know so um, but no, it wasn't used as a recruitment tactic in, in my uh, remembrance. Yeah, so same for me. It didn't come up formally, um, but, um, but other faculty and, and actually outside of surgery who, who sort of pay attention to some of these things um, highlighted them and sort of brought it to my attention as I spoke with them and brought opportunities. So. You know, there's a, a saying in the DEI uh, space, uh, you can't be what you can't see. And um, I always hated that saying because um, I think it's 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 a it creates a vicious cycle a catch twenty two. Well, you're you're not going to see someone like yourself, and and if you can't be what you can't see, then you'll never be that 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 someone that you want to uh, obtain. Um, and there's another saying that 
it's kind of a reality. Someone has to be the Jackie Robinson, um, but That's we, true. but we don't have to go through the same experiences that Jackie Robinson went through. So Jackie Robinson, um, you know, I encourage people to hit Wikipedia and, and, and learn what, what he went through. Um, what are some of the, the opposite things that you went through, uh, opposite from what Jackie Robinson went through? What, what have been the ways that your uh, community at Mass General has supported you and, and made you feel included uh, as, and, and part of the fabric uh, that has uh, helped you uh, in your reality of being the first? Um, you know, I'll, I'll go back to, to some of the sort of the support from my colleagues and my faculty. I, I don't know that it's, it's come because I'm the first. It, it almost certainly hasn't. Um, but, but notwithstanding, I, I have felt incredibly supported right, right from the start, um, clinically and, and, and otherwise. And, and I think that has, has certainly made me feel like I've made the right decision and, and long term will obviously contribute to my attention. Um, I, I think on the academic side that there is a lot of um, specific um, minority driven grant funding for research projects. Um, you know, a couple from the, we have a Center for Diversity and Inclusion that, that has, you know, provides a, a large number of grants for faculty of color to, to encourage us to, to do research and, and help to sort of stimulate our independence. And, and I received one of those grants and, and um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge thing for me to be able to, to launch my research program with that degree of support. Um, th those are two of the big ones. I, I think that the faculty within the um, Department of Cardiac Sur of Surgery outside of CT surgery has, has also been incredibly welcoming and, and, um, and you know, pulled me into situations. And, and I, I think that I think the leadership too has, has just has been quite good. Um, sending all these opportunities, putting them in front of me and, and truly empowering me to, to grow. And, and I think it'll only stay that way over the next several years. Now, you know, you know, as first year faculty, it's really important to kind of get your feet established and get a, a, a calm seas uh, aspect around you. And you talked about your your desire to uh, pay it forward, if you will. You know, you've had mentors that helped you, and and really, you know, you helping um, uh, the generation coming up behind you, many of whom are people of color, uh, and being uh, available to them. Um, but you know, I can imagine since you are sort of uh, the the first, you know. Uh, Black cardiac surgeon at MGH, there's probably a lot of people coming out of the woodwork, you know, really hoping you would guide them and mentor them. How do you balance, you know, that desire to be present for the people coming up behind you, but really protecting your space and your time to not only accomplish your professional goals, but to maintain your wellness and your family, uh, family um, uh, uh, ties and connection? I, I won't say it's easy. It, it is not, um, and and those are those are not the only pressures. I, I I'm in a role that is about uh, forty percent research, so working hard to to build the research program and um, and also you know receiving requests for support on that side in addition to the clinical side. I, I will say one of the benefits of staying at a place that I trained is that many of the junior 
um, the, the residents and, and fellows are, you know, they're friends. These people are not, they're not strangers to me in any way. So it's, it's very easy to develop a relationship that, that becomes a mentorship relationship. And I think um, I've had that already with many of the people. So continuing that to, to mentoring people to presentations at the recent SBAS meeting, for example, was, it was natural and, 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 you know, just came by very smoothly. And, and, uh, you know, the things that I, I'm very happy about and look forward to continue to do. I, I will say, you know, time management as a, as a junior attending is, is, it's, it's a job and it's a, and, and trying to find the right balance is, like I said, it's not easy, but, um, I, yeah, I prioritize my my personal life to some degree as, as much as I can, and, and I think, you know, in many ways, learning to treat that as as a as a category in itself and, and that carries as much weight as work and as much weight as research and as much weight as mentoring has has been uh, an important step. It's an important mental step I needed to make. What what are your uh, uh, goals in regards to to working with the community in Boston? Yeah, it, it's very interesting, and it's a, it's a challenge that I, I'm sort of realizing more now. Um, but by the numbers, Boston is is a diverse enough city, but I, I do think it still is um, partitioned in many ways, where, where certain groups live, live in certain places. And and as you know from your time here, Beacon Hill is um, is is not the most diverse of, of those areas. So I we have to work very hard to go into to areas like East Boston and, and Jamaica Plain, and and you know do outreach there and really make sure that some of the, the services are provided are available to people there. The, I mentioned the Center for Diversity and Inclusion with, with many of the, the things that we do um, academically, but, but they, they're also a wonderful vehicle for outreach uh, to the community around us. And, and we hope to, to keep building and, and keep um, you know, reaching out to folks. I, I was a part of the Department of Surgery Community Health Group um, as a resident and fellow here. And, and that group has gone out to the North Shore and the South Shore and worked with at-risk youth. And, and it's something that we hope to keep doing as well. Um, and, and that sort of the fostering the education mission of the things that we do at MGH. And you talk about, uh, you know, Beacon Hill potentially lacking diversity. Uh, it does have economic diversity. I, when I was a resident, I lived on the bottom of Beacon Hill, and that's where <laughs> all, all the folks of my economic means uh, lived. And then, as you got up higher in Beacon Hill, the the, the uh, economic uh, absolutely right. abilities uh, a change uh, a little bit there. So there is some uh, uh, economic uh, diversity there. So you know what has been yours sort of biggest surprise uh, in regards to uh, the application of cardiac surgery um, as, a, as a faculty member? Are there specific opportunities that you see uh, that you could see as your own niche and that you could grow within uh, cardiac adult cardiac surgery? Yeah. Um, I, I started out with a, with a very broad portfolio, if you will. I, I, I do heart and lung transplant. I do the full spectrum of MCS and FADS and NECMO, and, and then I do adult cardiac with, with valves and, and um, coronaries. Um, I, I think personally, I, I just really come to enjoy coronary surgery. I, I, I liked it as a fellow, but um, didn't know I would enjoy it um, as much as, as a faculty member. And, and I've, I've particularly enjoyed teaching it um, to, to some of our, our residents already. And, and thankfully, I'm, I'm empowered by my senior faculty to do that. 
Um, so so I, th I think it, it interfaces very nicely with, with my work in transplant and, and mechanical circulatory support. So really over the next several years, hope to keep building this niche in, in things like total arterial cabbage, minimally invasive cabbage, and then um, high-risk cabbage in people with low ejection fraction and, and things like that. I think in addition to the work that I do in transplant, heart and lung, um, that, that is the, the other place that I hope to focus. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, the, the leadership and work that we've done at MGH with, with DCD heart transplantation in particular. Um, and in addition to that clinical program, we're, we're building up a, a research program in ex vivo heart perfusion and, and, you know, that we hope will really expand the capabilities of, of DCD heart transplantation um, and, and using marginalized organs. So, um... Uh, uh, Fatima, I have not been ignoring you. You uh, had to run out and, and catch your uh, 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 kid uh, coming off the school bus. Um, and I think that sort of uh, dovetail uh, nicely into uh, our perceptions of cardiothoracic surgery and who can participate in cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, and can you uh, raise a family um, and be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, what would you say to, to those folks who are listening, who are like, I love uh, uh, cardiac surgery, I love thoracic surgery, I love congenital heart surgery, um, but can I raise a family and still uh, do what I love professionally? Uh, I think the short answer is definitely yes. Um, the long answer is that it, it takes a lot to do it. It takes the right community. Um, and, uh, you know, partner can be a broad term. That could be your parents. It could be your best friend. It could be the grandmother that is inherited. Um, it could be anybody, but you need a community of people that will stand by you and support you in this process because there's no way you can do it alone. Um, I think that, you know, even without a family, a lot of times we feel like we're not doing the best that we can in different arenas. And I think that in wanting to have a family and have this career, you have to learn to be comfortable with that sentiment and feel like you, you know, you don't have to be perfect at everything. You give it your best. You explain to your children as they grow older, why you couldn't be there for everything. And then you hope that they can see that what you're away for is worthwhile um, and it gives them something something to strive to. So I definitely think it's it's possible. It just you just have to have the right support around you. And it's it's worth it hundred percent. So uh uh Dr. Wilder, uh where do you see thoracic surgery going in the future? And where is your where where do you fit in with the evolution of our specialty? Um, I think the first word that comes to mind is collaboration. I think there's going to be a, a great need for us to work with medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, um, pulmonologists, and at least within the world of thoracic surgery to answer the questions that we haven't found answers to yet in terms of lung cancer, esophageal cancer, and, and treating patients, because patients have access to all the same information in a lot of ways that we do, and they're coming with tougher questions, and they don't all want surgery right away. So we have to be able and willing to um, not always just look at things as surgeons and be willing to engage in, in conversation for different ways to treat them. 
Um, but that doesn't, but we have to be at the table because if we're not there, then a significant piece of patient care is going to be missing and our perspective um, needs to be present. Um, I think that, you know, with that, we have to push ourselves to also read and learn and, and, and um, go beyond what may be within our comfort zone. Yeah, you know, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And um, and that's how we learn uh, uh, new things after we've completed training. What you all learned in training a year ago, you know, it may not be what you're practicing five years from now or, or, or 10 years from now. Uh, Dr. Osho, um, where is cardiac surgery going and, and how do you fit into that? I, I, I shouldn't keep copying Dr. Wilder, but I, but I think it, it truly is, is collaborative as well. I think with, with all the transcatheter ther therapies and, and even the things that we do in transplant, everything is, is very much team-based and it, we've got a, a big multidisciplinary approach to, to managing pretty much all that we do. So, so we're finding ways to optimize uh, our collaborations across these, these specialty groups and, and you know, continue to provide excellent options for patients with minimizing the, the risk and, and hazards of, of the procedures, I think is the way forward. Um, I, I, I mentioned minimally invasive coronary work in the past, and, and I think that's certainly a place that I, I hope to, to make some contributions um, long-term. Um, but, but I think also that with mechanical circulatory support, the, the devices are getting smaller and, and you know, fancier, and I, I also to be in the forefront of, of getting these things to our patients. Well, Dr. Wilder, Dr. Osho, you know, MGH and Brigham have a longstanding history of being rivals. Uh, but the two of you represent that detente of, of uh, excellence, uh, both shining and rising stars in uh, uh, cardiothoracic surgery. And um, really, our community is proud of, of what you have accomplished and what you will do moving forward. Thank you very much for uh, uh, talking with me today on Same Surgeon, Different Light. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.